0: We are still Talking Feds, and we are still live at the Austin Texas Tribune Festival. I actually want to start this uh, panel with some comments that Chris Hayes made during the festival that, you know, we're at a juncture in which the survival of the American experiment is on the table. It's not 100% clear. In 14 months, we'll either see the return of Donald Trump as the 47th president and the possible end of the American experiment. I think I hear like Texas rattlesnakes in it, <laughs> with of course the potential that he's told us expressly about for further damage to constitutional democracy, or alternatively we may have a chance to be looking to undo the damage caused by the influence over the last eight years. So I really significant crossroads, and I don't have to tell anybody uh, that here. So what I wanted to do here is assume the best, assume that Trump, at least it's not, doesn't have the reins of government. But still, the question remains, I think it's pretty fundamental to many of the panels in this conference, is there, and to what extent is there Trumpism after Trump? What needs to happen concretely to return to some semblance of two-party rule and constructive government, at least as that term might have been defined 10 years ago. And I wanted to talk about what will be the respective roles, not only of the GOP, which has suffering from real sort of deep rot, I think it's fair to say, but also Democrats, opinion elite, civic institutions and the like, if we have time to plow through that. And we have on this stage a phenomenal, ideal, really set of prominent speakers who combine rich experience in government with deep knowledge as commentators. And they are David French, an opinion columnist with the New York Times, a former JAG officer deployed to Iraq in 2007. He earned a Bronze Star with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment. Thank you for your service. He joined National Review in 2015, has been a prominent voice in American politics and has addressed growing polarization most recently in his book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation, very apropos. David, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me and thanks for your hospitality. Yeah. This has been incredible. Heck, yeah.
0: Jason Kander, the president of the National Expansion and Veterans Community Project, yes? A non There's an
2: actual question mark in my title. It's not Harry's fault.
0: <laughs> yeah. Dedicated to fight, fighting veterans, suicide, and homelessness. After himself serving in the Army in Afghanistan, thank you for your service. He was elected to the Missouri State Legislature, later became Missouri Secretary of State. He hosts the popular podcast, Majority 54, and Talking Fence covered his book, Invisible Storm, a Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. In a Talking Books episode last year. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Bill Kristol, the editor-at-large at at The Bulwark, uh, which just had a panel with Evan Smith and the four brains behind the job there, founder and director also of Defending Democracy Together. Famously, Bill founded the Weekly Standard in 1995 and edited that magazine for over two decades he served in senior positions in the Reagan administration, George H.W. Bush administration, and he's host of the video series and podcast, Conversations with Bill Crystal. Bill <laughs> Crystal, <Andy. laughs>
3: very imaginative.
0: <laughs> and finally, Jennifer Palmieri, the co host of the Emmy nominated political documentary series, The Circus on Showtime. She's also the author. Fan, Of the number one New York Times bestselling book, Dear Madam President, and she proclaims our Declaration of Independence from a man's world. Previously, she worked for over two decades in the White House as well as many roles in political communication. All right, a lot of territory to uh, plow through. Let's start by defining terms just a bit. David, I wanted to quote you. America, you've written needs two healthy political parties and not just because healthy parties create better politics. What is the metric for defining healthy parties? We know that the good old days of yore maybe weren't so good, but still the days of today are pretty darn bad. What are we looking as benchmarks to a restoration of some semblance of healthy two-party rule?
1: I'm not utopian. Life has beaten the utopianism out of Mm -hmm. me. So I have a low bar. So are you committed to the existence of the classical liberal American experiment? That is a full stop because I think one of the fundamental divides in our country right now is between those people who are committed to, and again, this is small l liberalism, and those who are drawn towards authoritarianism. And then the American experiment cannot survive authoritarianism. Every serious strain on the American experiment in our history has been when we seek to deny rights uh, and to deny individual liberties of Americans. So are you committed to American classical liberalism? That's number one. Number two, is there a basic commitment to the rule of law? And number three, is there a basic commitment to character and integrity and in leadership? I'm not calling for perfection. We're human beings. Any co- large collection of human beings, there will be bad apples in every orchard. But I'm just saying, these are the minimum requirements. We need a commitment to liberalism. We need a commitment to the rule of law. We need a basic commitment to character and integrity. And when you have that as a foundation, you can actually accommodate a lot of difference. Our system was built to accommodate difference. And so that's, that's all I'm asking. <laughs> is that and, and, so hard? Is <laughs> that so hard? But you know what? It's really hard. Yeah it's really hard because all of those qualities conflict with the will to power. And right now we have, and especially as we have seen in the MAGA movement, a pure, raw, undistilled will to power and our country cannot survive that.
0: Other thoughts along these lines? I would ask: so where does, because I'm sure it does, the fidelity to truth, facts, non-alternative facts come in? Is that part of the sort of character and if you're a liar you don't have very good character. Yeah, there you so, go. All yeah. Right.
1: That's it. there there are several okay. things that are come within character such as yeah. integrity, honesty. Here's another one, a basic commitment to competence. So I think of, you know, carelessness and incompetence mm-hmm. is bad a form of bad character. So there's a lot encompassed in character, but again, none of all of this stuff is uh what's that old book, everything I needed to know I learned in the kindergarten. Kid, right. You know, it's like, combine everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten with everything I needed to know about our Constitution I learned in fifth grade. And you combine these two, like, very basic sets right. of values, right?
0: And put them up against
1: a normal uh,
0: oversight committee hearing, say, in with Jim Jordan, et cetera, and you wonder, where are their manners? Everyone down with this three-part definition?
2: I agree with yeah. everything David said. What I think is interesting about it is is that I think we went naively apparently through so much of our of our lives assuming that everybody was on team democracy i mean and and obviously that meant that for years and some in some ways this still exists for years after the fight became a fight between authoritarianism and, and democracy we were still operating as though the leadership of one party well clearly what they want is democracy they have a different way to get to these solutions and my wife who came to the U.S. as a refugee from the Soviet Union when she was eight said to me about a year ago she was like I don't know why everybody just assumes that everybody in America is for democracy she's Mm -hmm. like you show me any country and there's a portion of people who prefer authoritarianism and I think we're finding
3: out that that's the case I mean, if I could just pick up on that, I mean, some people used to ask David and me back in 2015, 16, why are you never Trump? You don't like the tweets, you don't like some particular positions on trade or on foreign policy or on anything. And This is the reason we were never Trump, honestly, that if we did glimpse, I will say, to our credit, we didn't quite glimpse everything, obviously, and we made all kinds of tactical mistakes, I'm sure, along the way, but we glimpsed that letting, if he became first the nominee of one of our two major parties and then somewhat flukishly became the president for four years, it would have a big effect on our system, and it and that's for me is key. We can survive. The founders understood there would always be demagogues in a democracy. We've had a lot of them. Some of them have done a lot of damage. Some of them have done, you know, Senator Joe McCarthy or Governor George Wallace. And it's, but you can survive that if the system as a whole holds. They they can distort things for a few years. They can distort parts of the country. They can do real damage. I don't mean to minimize it. The president is different. We have been lucky in not having a demagogue as president, really almost for our history, but certainly in the last century, I would say. Or certainly, and people have been somewhat demagogic on the way to the presidency or at moments in the presidency, individual things that presidents look back on and like, they're, not, they're not proud of. But I mean, we've never had someone who as president decided to not just to continue his demagoguery and to exacerbate the divisions and to play on the anxieties and to just make things, and to purge from his party uh, those who wouldn't go along with him. And we haven't had, a, then the really c- catastrophic thing was the party going along with it you can imagine a scenario where trump becomes president four years it's bad unpleasant does some damage but kind of a parenthesis in american history and people look back and say well that was kind of crazy and but yeah. unfortunate but we're joe mccarthy might be a good instance of that you know what i mean where okay by 1960 you had kennedy and nixon you had whatever you know and you had normal politics again so to speak that is but at, when when the party went along with trump and the conservative movement that david and i used to be part of went along with trump then we, it gets much more embedded, and then we have January. Then he runs for reelection. No one will really challenge him. Uh, we tried, but we failed. So then, luckily, he loses and it got to President Biden. And then January six happens, and you think, okay, maybe this is the moment. This right. becomes this is sort of the moment where the parenthesis gets reestablished because it gives an excuse, in a way, to the Republicans who went along with much too much and who supported him for reelection, knowing what that second term would be like, but still felt they had to support him. But okay, whatever. January six happens. That's the moment. And what, one week after January 6th, 10 out of 210 Republicans in the House vote for impeachment. And then yeah. he comes back, and then there's all these moments when maybe he'll be gone, maybe he'll be gone. And here he is, the almost prohibitive favorite to be the nominee. And it shows how, and then, of course, people are imitating Trump, and there are junior league Trumps, and there are members running for Congress who are like Trump, and they're defeating the normie Republicans. And the notion that uh, people, when will the fever break? We're way beyond that now. And so that's the problem. This gets to Harry's, yeah, I mean, this gets just, to your formulation yeah. of the problem. This yeah. thing is not, this toothpaste is, is out there. The toxins yeah. are in the bloodstream. It's going to take quite a while, I'm afraid, to, to deal with them. And, and it's not going to be as easy as people hope, even if Trump loses in, in November of 24.
0: What uh, I would South. say
4: about um, David's um, sort of his trifecta is that I think a lot of Trump supporters would say they agree with that. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, they think that they are they, – character and integrity, they are, they are defending – the United States of America against all of us. You know that this this election was stolen. I mean, you know, I, I in my work for the circus, I go to a lot of Trump events and talk to people there. People in Arizona so sincere, so concerned. They can't believe what's happened. Haven't you watched two thousand mules? What are we going to do about this? I talked to people at January fifth, twenty twenty one, in Georgia, um, the night before Jan six, and there I'm like, you know, I said, do you think Joe Biden won this state? Well, no, of course not. I was like, well, why would Brian, why would the Republican governor and the Republican secretary of state allow that to happen? I don't know. I don't, it's crazy. I mean, they're like, it's, I mean, and I'm thinking this is how I would feel if this was happening to me. So like that's part of the problem is they think they are doing, I don't know about defending liberalism, but that they would think of it in those terms. They don't think they're trying to allow authoritarianism. They think that that's what Biden represents.
1: Well, I, I would dispute that a little bit because if you look at the new right, They say what is the purpose of the right? It is to wield power, to punish enemies, and reward friends. This is the the net at the leadership level. And it is really filtered down in the ranks and to the point where if you say that I'm for liberal values such as free speech, just let's just start with free speech. Well, the time for that is over. There are there are great emergencies confronting the United States of America like drag queens, and we need (laughs) We need to, in all of these First Amendment doctrines, those are the doctrines of losers. And you see this, even in my local community, you see this kind of argument. It is power. We have to have power. And so, yeah, but they, uh, many of them would say it's almost like a state of emergency where you have to impose control from the top, reset everything, and like reboot the computer but an enormous swath of the right is actually committed to power. But another whole part of it, literally people will tell me that Trump is Reagan-esque. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but there is, at the, at the top-down level, this real commitment to power. And Ron DeSantis is Exhibit A of that.
0: And notice, except for that little mention at the end, this, this supersedes or, or uh, supplants Trump as a, as a figure. In other words, if he were vaporized painlessly, this would still abide. So I really do want to try to plow through the different social components. Let's start with the uh, elephant in the room, but I want to move to other parties and such. But Bill, you you said this, you've adverted to it actually in Talking Feds episodes that I'm going to quote Michael Steele here, it's like a cancer that has overrun an organ at a point you can't say, well, we can take out half the liver, we need to take out all of it seriously, in concrete terms, because we see the people who are, you could call Trumpist, having motivations that are completely divorced from the three factors that David noted and that that nevertheless are a kind of power for them. It's a different, it's a new sort of power, being on Fox News and being reelected overwhelmingly in their very red districts, and that doesn't seem to go away. Honestly, what has to happen And 10 years, 20 years, whatever, for the Republican Party to return to some semblance of the criteria David spelled out. Yeah,
3: boy, that Michael Steele thing is kind of grim. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The old boy can get a little, right? Yeah. I mean, the the medical analogy I've used, which is slightly more uh, cheerful, it's an infection. infections can be extremely dangerous obviously if we all know in hospitals and so forth uh, they can be deadly but that is what has to be the infection has to be dealt with before you do all the rehab physical therapy improve your you know exercise regimen or even deal honestly with the cancer if that's what you have to deal with you know at some point so i I regard Trumpism as an infection which which needs to be defeated and that needs to be Suppressed. to use the medical. Is that, is,
0: but is that necessary but not sufficient? Well yeah, that's necessary but not yeah.
3: sufficient. But you might still have then organs that are damaged yeah. and rehab that's necessary and you know new operations, so to speak, that are to continue to torture this medical analogy yeah. that are that are still necessary six or twelve months later. But you can't do anything yeah. when the infection is raging. And I, 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 the question of what happens after Trump is complex. I mean, the original demagogue is the most effective demagogue usually in history. Trump does have a unique hold. He's the guy who did it. He's the guy who liberated people to indulge in certain things, as David suggested. He's the guy who won in 2016. I'd say among liberals and among some of our friends, even David, this, that is underrated as an important thing. You know, and especially when, like Ron DeSantis, I can win and Trump didn't. Really, Trump is the only presidential Republican to win the presidency since 2004. You know, the only one not named Bush to win the presidency since 1984. And so voters, a whole swath of Republican voters don't believe it when you say he can't win. So I do think if Trump loses, and it would have been great if he might be one 5% chance it still happen, 10% lose the nomination, but if right. he loses the presidency, I do think it's a bit of a new moment. I think all kinds of things he's unleashed don't go away in the body politic, in the society, in media, and Congress, I mean, there are a million dysfunctions, but I do think we shouldn't underestimate, I And mean, the good news in a weird way is that it is somewhat, I think, Trump-dependent still, and that if, if that infection can be defeated, so to speak, you at least have a chance to think about how do you rebuild. But
0: as you say, I mean, there's a lot that's really... The party itself is so altered. It's not simply the 8 out of 10 that we named. Pretty much the whole caucus, right, has been replaced. But anyway, the, the, I mean, we've seen in the last week the kind of power politics that, you know, seem to prevail at the party
3: level. Look, anyway. I think different people will run for office if Trump yeah. moves on. Yeah. I personally know many people, Jason knows them too, I think many, right. including many post-9-11 vets who have thought of running... Uh, were Republican-ish in inclination, maybe would have served in a Republican administration if it had been a Rubio or a Jeb Bush administration from 2017 to 2021, would have gone home to run for office, as many people we know have. Uh, Those people might reemerge. And some of the people who've gone along with Trump more than they should have, in my opinion, than Trump adjacent and Trump acquiescent, they could... They could become unadjacent and unacquiescent. Not all, you know. So I think the damage has been done. There's a lot of young Trumpists out there. We were talking about your uh, great buddy there in Missouri, Josh Hawley, and, and others. But others will opportunistically not see... not my great buddy. <laughs> just, others will opportunistically see maybe the way to go is a little different from what Ron DeSantis and Vivek uh, Ramaswamy thought was the way to go. Having said that, not to be too utopian here, I mean, it is a jarring fact, we just can't get away with it from it, that 75% of the Republican primary electorate is for the three, I'm gonna say authoritarian or authoritarian adjacent candidates, and 25% is for people who have been too accommodating to Trump, incidentally, in many ways, but still are basically normal, let's just call them Republicans, and we would not lose sleep over, I think, if one of them became president. 75-25 is not a good balance, but if Trump is removed, could that balance go back to 50-50, 60-40, 60? Maybe, but it's not going back to 90-10 any So, Maybe. and
0: in a minimum, we're talking about a gradual evolutionary process, yes? You don't you know, like the odds for a fully healthy society in the next, Two years, three years even. Yeah, I don't know. You, we yeah. don't
3: have that much experience with this. And I mean, yeah. there's some contrary historical examples of things lingering forever in a really bad way. Or countries getting over this kind of stuff surprisingly Fair. quickly, uh-huh. sometimes. They're usually not without a big military yeah, or something. Exactly. But, yeah. That's a minor problem. Yeah. We don't want that. Uh-huh. I would say somebody, one slight upbeat, contrary thing is Zelensky and Ukraine, what they've done and shown what a kind of healthy liberalism, if I can put it in a, you know, in a big way, is and being willing to fight for your country and do so against the most brutal uh, invasion by a dictator and the support he's getting in the u.s including now it's eroding among republicans so that's bad and i wish it were stronger but it's not nothing i mean the republicans are basically 50 -50 50-ish i would say on on ukraine so that shows there's still some spark in some republican souls that admires people who are fighting for freedom and for democracy and for their country against the most brutal kind of invasion by a dictator whom trump of course has uh, you Honest know yeah. cosseted.
2: so I see two things here in terms of like how long it takes us to uh, get back is like yeah. the wrong i think it, I think we would all probably agree it's to turn the page to whatever's next um and the first I think that's really important for us to remember is that while obviously trump i agree is the original demagogue, this is something that's sweeping the world at the moment, and I think it's really important to think about that in this context, and that is to say that if not for that, it is. Much harder to envision Trump successfully doing what he did in 2016. I mean, if you look across the world, there's a battle going on, in some cases quite literally, as was alluded to, between authoritarianism and democracy, or however else you'd like to to put it. And so one of the things that I hope Americans increasingly start being urged to grapple with is where are we in that fight? Like, this is not just Republicans versus Democrats. This is where does America stand in the worldwide conflict between authoritarianism and team democracy. And then the second thing that makes me much more concerned about our ability to move past the Trump era, or him as a person, is the political incentive system and the way redistricting and gerrymandering works. Because... I agree. I do think there are some great people out there who I think when it comes to more competitive Senate races, more competitive gubernatorial races, you're going to see people incentivized politically to behave like they're not insane, and that'll be great. (laughs) But the vast majority of congressional districts are built in such a way that it is simply a question of which Democrat or which Republican is going to represent it. And not to drone on too long, but 100 years ago when I... I know. I know I'm, like, not the oldest person up here, but it still feels it feels like a long time ago to me. I said 100 years ago because I say it that way all the time, and then I instantly felt self-conscious. Yeah. I apologize. Um, but, well, you should have. Yes, I'm sorry, Bill. Um, what felt like a long time ago to me, when I got to the Missouri State Legislature in 2009, I got there thinking partisan politics was Democrats versus Republicans, and that's what would shape most of what went on. But what I quickly learned was that, no, most of what shaped what actually happened in the state capitol was Democrats wanting to win primaries against Democrats and Republicans wanting to win primaries against Republicans. And so in terms of at the congressional or or state legislative level that shapes so much of our politics, at the end of the day, you're going to have a lot of right-wing Republicans trying to be as right-wing as possible in order to move from the House to the Senate or from the State House to to the U.S. House. And that will slow that transition a great deal, I think.
0: Well, and also it seems to have been a core power of of Trump at sort of the end of the day, the ability to force a, a primary battle. Okay, so let's go to the party that's usually kept out of this discussion, but ought to be part of it. So from David's standpoint, you know, there's, I mean, there's an argument just for sheer political terms that Democrats should just, Sit back and let the Republicans shoot themselves in the foot, perhaps, but let's take the vantage point of we want in 5, 10, 20 years, in fact, to have this kind of healthy polity. What's the Democrats' responsibility, if that was their lookout? What's their responsible kind of path to, this, to a two party functioning system?
4: I think we've been trying, we've got the Republic together. You know, Democrats have got the Republican together. Democrats argue amongst ourselves, we debate a lot. Generally, Democrats have believed in more action. That means we argue over the details because we care about the details because we're trying to enact policy and we have big fights, but we have big fights and then we come to some kind of compromise and agreement and move on from there. I think that particularly, you know, job Jason used to have, Secretary of State, Democrats, Secretaries of State have done a great job in trying to just maintain democracy and do that not through a partisan lens, but just to advocate for those kinds of, Reforms for voting when it's needed or just backing people up when they are come under attack like Brad Raffensperger But I mean I guess you could argue when uh, the House elections last cycle The DCCC, the House campaign committee for the Democratic House Ran ads saying some Republican candidates were super conservative And that helped elect those conservative Republicans You could look at that and say You know, was that a smart thing to do? I talked to Sean Patrick Maloney, who at the time was the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and he's like, you know what that Republican will do if they're elected? They will vote for Kevin McCarthy for Speaker. And no, we can't have that. We can't have Kevin McCarthy. So I think that we are, it right now, we are in a fight and like happy that there are a lot of Republicans or whatever you call yourself, former Republicans that are aligned in the fight with democracy, but you have to extinguish that You have to vanquish them again, on the other side, the people who are not letting democracy stand. And you got to be ruthless about it. So I don't think there's something for Democrats to compromise on or reach out to. Like You have to vanquish that sickness.
0: You pointed, and consider the alternative, the Democrats need to be a party that urgently defends democracy, moderation, and the rule of law. Fairly similar trifecta. They need to be something of an institutionalist party they also need to be a party that urgently advances major reforms in our institutions, many of which
2: are either broken or damaged. I agree with, with Jen. I think basically we have to win. Like, that's our job right now. Yeah. And and what I would add to that, and because obviously, like, uh, pretty what a brilliant thing I just said, obviously. <laughs> what I mean. But what I would say to color that in, like all that. the reforms that we all nodded, like when I talked about redistricting reform a minute ago, we all nodded our head. There's just one party that wants to do that right now. Now, what I think that requires and we have a moment coming up in 2024 that's going to test us again where the prospect of trump winning is so scary that we naturally and this i understand we deploy every possible strategy to peel people off of him as their voters and the and one of the primary strategies that has been deployed against him has been to say to republican voters he you are not a trump republican there's trump and then there's republicans and really the Really, the theme of this conversation is, is that, to a degree, right? Like, what happens to the two parties after Trump, which really characterizes Trump as separate from the Republican Party. Trump characterizes himself. as He refers to the parties as they, <laughs> you know? There's Trump and there's rhinos. And right? so what I think we have to do... At this point, we're a few years into the Trump version of the Republican Party, and there's pretty wholesale subscription from at least elected Republicans, not all the way across the board, but pretty close... I think that the job of people like me who just talk about this stuff, not even for a living, it's just what I do, you know, and and sometimes people listen, is to make the case that they're not separate, that now this is the Republican Party. And so for, for Democrats, and everybody up here may not agree with this, but for me as a Democrat, my job is to convince people that if you don't like Trump, it is because you're a Democrat not because you are a Republican who doesn't like Trump. That's my role now.
3: I don't disagree with that. And I've been, I like think David would agree with me on this, that we've been pretty tough on the Republican Party. Maybe I've been a little more extreme than David in this, in, in going along with Trump, accommodating Trump, acquiescing in Trump, and therefore it is a Trumpist party, in effect. And those people do not deserve a pass on that. On the other hand, I do think we did the Republican voters against Trump, things, Sarah Longwell and I, in 2020. And it turned out to be effective. This is just sure. empirically the case that you do need people who have voted for Republicans in the past to vote for the democrat otherwise you don't have a majority right i mean republicans win some of these state, statewide josh shapiro did an excellent job of this in 2022 in pennsylvania and whitmer mm-hmm. in michigan in 2022 20, and that's why i want whitmer or shapiro to be the presidential candidate in 2024 for the democrats right. but it's impossible for various okay. reasons apparently <laughs> anyway um i don't know why because, <laughs> because the party's decided that you know we have to have anyway whatever i'm not going to litigate this Carvel and i are on one side of this everyone else is on the other side and we'll, whatever happens happens but either way obviously biden or Whitmer or Shapiro have to win, but I do think there are lessons. I would say one thing it's really for Jen more uh, Well, everyone. I mean, I don't think the Democrats are very Purposeful about learning as the lessons quite as well as they could uh, from winning candidates It's not like we haven't had Democrats win in the Trump yeah. era both yeah. at the state level the congressional level some states are just too hard I take that point and so but still Jason was within two points in Missouri yeah. That tells you something you should learn something from his campaign But if you're within two and a half points in Missouri, you yeah. can win a bunch of other states, and Texas. obviously Shapiro. Shapiro was lucky in his opponent. Wimmer had a pretty respectable Trumpy opponent, and the whole ticket went down, you know, the whole state went Democratic uh, in a way that Jason mentions, which is like you actually punished other Republicans yeah. for being Trump accommodating. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned from what Wimmer did in Michigan and some of these other states, George, I would say. And so, uh, but, but I do think my only caveat maybe to what Jason was saying is you do need to tell, you need people who have voted in the past for a John McCain or a Mitt Romney or for whoever else to say, to be able to tell themselves, you don't have to be embarrassed or humiliated by the fact that you supported some Republican 10 years ago. And when we went further, because we thought it was important to, and you don't have to be humiliated if you kind of fell, got a little suckered by Trump even in 2016, you need to now do the right thing. I tend to agree that the right thing now would be Democratic majorities in most bodies and in most states uh, that would be healthy for the short term but you do need to win over ex-republicans what did pete Buttigieg call them people like me in 2019 2020 he said he wanted to have a coalition of progressives and moderates you know young and old you know people like like and also he wanted the votes of future former republicans
1: (laughs) (laughs) and i think that's a very nice formulation david you've been
0: wanting yeah okay
1: i'm i've very strong feelings about okay. this, because I live in the heart of MAGA country. My neighborhood is 85% Republican. Guys. Not
0: just Republican, but MAGA, you would oh, think. Oh,
1: Lord, okay. Uh,
3: David had a full head of hair before. I, was, I did. Uh, yeah. I
1: had a mullet, like I like <laughs> Do not look at Republican dysfunction as an opportunity. It's a mortal peril, period, okay? In 2016, a lot of Democrats are going, ha, 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 you Republican idiots. Look who you nominated. And he won. Okay? And so this drives me crazy. I see the heart of it, guys. And if you're sitting there saying, well, you know, the crazier the Republicans get, the better the chances of the Democrats are. Maybe, maybe you, you got real lucky in 2022 when a lot of the, the really hard-edged people that some Democratic money was spent promoting, they all lost good good for you you're playing with fire here you know and the idea that you know i had a really nice guy come up to me last night after a a panel i did and he said david really love hearing what you have to say i really appreciate a lot of your comments why aren't you a democrat was a great question it's a great question had an immediate answer your party would not want me in it it doesn't want me i'm pro-life i have advocate for religious liberty I'm absolutely committed to constitutional principles of our governance. I'm absolutely committed to the rule of law. I'm absolutely committed to these values. But the instant I see it, the instant that I have friends who love me when I'm talking about Trump, you would not believe the things they say to me <laughs> when I you know, deviate from progressive orthodoxy. And look guys, it's deeper than a specific political issue. I have some very, very good friends. Uh, on the left, and we have joined hands politically in a way I never thought we would. And I was talking to one of them, and I said, and we were having a late-night phone call, one of these calls of, like, can you believe this? Can you believe this? And I said, you know how I know we're going to be through this again is when we're yelling at each other about gun control because we're fighting over a real political issue, not over whether the republic is going to survive, that's where we are. And so my colleague, Michelle Goldberg, who's really brilliant and deeply insightful, she's, she has uh, repeated this concept many times. Healthy movements look for converts. Unhealthy movements hunt for heretics. And so the movement that looks for converts, I think, is the movement that's going to ultimately prevail. And right now, the GOP is hunting heretics. And the heresy in the GOP is defying Trump. So I would urge, and it's a kind of a high bar, and it's really honestly unfair to Democrats to sort of be in this position of, well, you know, to save America, we kind of have to compromise. And nobody's asking those guys. There's no pressure over there to ask those guys. I grant it. It's unfair. It's bad. But what do we really care about here? Are we going to keep going with this American experiment or not? So what I would urge all my friends in here who are, in the, in the Democratic Party on the progressive left, don't wall out people who want to partner with you in preserving our American Republic. Even people who you deeply agree with, disagree with on very important issues. Find a way to extend the tent, and then when the democracy is safe, just kick me right back out again, <laughs> and we can have the conversation. Like, let's have the argument, but I'm telling you, it's bad. I'm around people who talk about civil war all the time, all the time. I have a mayoral candidate in our community, and this is a very, very red community that's growing and thriving, and people want to move here from all over here to Franklin, Tennessee, from all over America. And the establishment Republican mayor is being challenged by a Moms for Liberty endorsed candidate, but not because Franklin is failing. It's not. Not because Franklin isn't. Conservative. It's incredibly conservative. But she believes that the mayor isn't doing enough to combat pedophilia. What? <laughs> and, and by the way, this woman, white supremacists, she is a realtor for a white supremacist group, and they have said that she has invited them to, into the community to, for example, demonstrate, and it's dark. And so I think it's, I just want to impress upon you guys how urgent this is. And I understand it's not symmetrical. I understand that, but I'm just, I'm telling you, if your movement is one that says, well, I can pers- I'm can go so far, but I can't get to David French. I'm not going that far. I'm like, we're in trouble. Cause I'm really committed to this constitutional republic. I'm really committed to it. And so if the tent doesn't extend to me, it's not big enough.
0: It comes through a lot of comments as this is almost an extra political moment. Thinking of it in Democrats versus Republicans traditional terms seems a kind of a flaw. And to analogize it, well, it's Democrats versus Republicans, but now it happens to be Democrats versus Autocrats. That's actually, you know, a different kind of battle. And now a word from our sponsor the American Civil Liberties Union.
5: Hello, I'm Lauren Johnson, director of the ACLU's Abortion Criminal Defense Initiative. Let's be clear, those who want to end access to abortion care did not stop at the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Prosecutors and politicians across the country are now threatening criminal penalties against providers, helpers, and in some instances, those who access abortion care. The attack on reproductive freedom continues, and we will not stop fighting back. In addition to the work the ACLU is doing to stop laws that ban abortion, we're working alongside other reproductive legal rights organizations in the Abortion Defense Network to provide critical legal defense support. The ACLU's Abortion Criminal Defense Initiative is mobilizing a network of skilled criminal defense attorneys to defend people facing criminal investigations or prosecutions for providing, supporting, or obtaining abortion care. Those facing prosecution related to abortion care deserve a zealous defense. They will
0: not stand alone. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages.
6: Thank you, Harry. Today's Spirited Debate asks, to decant or not to decant? That is the question, and the short answer is yes. But when should you decant? First off, what is it? Decanting is the process of slowly pouring liquid, in this case wine, from one container to another without disturbing the sediment at the bottom. It is important to separate the wine from the sediment, if there is a lot of it, because sediment can dampen the aromas and flavors in your glass. Decanting wine also helps the wine to aerate, which is the process of introducing oxygen to the liquid. No doubt you've heard or even said the phrase, let the wine breathe. Well, that's what decanting does best, allowing those aromas to expand while making the wine more flavorful and balanced. And it's never a bad idea to decant a young, bold wine. In fact, at Total Wine & More, our guides recommend allowing an hour or two for the process to work best, This is not advisable for mature wines that just need to be separated from their sediment. Leaving a mature wine in a decanter for too long could cause flavors to become muted from too much aeration. Remember to taste your wine while decanting to be sure it is not left aerating for too long. And don't forget, the younger and more closed the flavors are when you open the wine, the more it will benefit from the decanting process. Even a few seconds of aeration or a quick swirl in your glass will do wonders to your favorite wine from Total Wine & More. However, the best rule of thumb is, whenever you can, decant. Taste and enjoy when it feels best to you. It's personal. Cheers. Thanks to our friends
0: at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Okay, I don't want to leave out broader aspects of society. So in our our maybe utopian or Panglossian scenario, we've taken care of the Republicans, everybody's good, Democrats, everybody's good. My sense, especially David but and Jason, but in particular, is that you think there there's a very important role that civil and social institutions have to play. You've written about purpose. You've written about military service. That, And I don't mean to serve that up as just for its virtue inherently, but what role do you think they need to play to also be doing the post-surgical intervention on the you know health of the patient as it
2: were well i mean since we're waving magic wands anyway yeah, exactly. in this conversation if i could wave a magic wand i would i would make it so that every american served for two years wouldn't have to be in the military Just, you know <laughs> sometime before they're 25 and the reason is is because i feel like our greatest problem is we don't know each other anymore and i think it, like what you're talking about with, you know, folks being so eager to, to hunt for heretics. And, and it's worse than that when you go across the party, right? Not intra-party. It's just, I don't know anybody like that, so I don't like them. And, you know, you can dehumanize the other side so easily. And it's just a lot harder to do that when you know somebody like that or you developed a friendship with somebody like that. And I just feel like if every American spent a year or two years working side by side with people who did not think, live, and, you know, make money at a level exactly like them, I think it would be a lot harder for us to hate each other and a lot less likely that we would want each other to lose.
0: Well, I I just want to push back on that because I think David knows his mayoral candidate pretty well. (laughs) And you you defined, you know, 20 minutes ago the overriding exigency as winning. So what is it about the being shoulder-to-shoulder that actually erases that kind of antagonism and do you want it erased it sounds like maybe you don't no i just
2: look i'm just realistic about a lot of the reforms that need to be done the one party needs to be in control to do it but if i could wave a magic wand and get past that part for me it's it's yes it's the shoulder-to-shoulder part of it but what it really is is like if i ask you right now what does it mean to be an american It is a whole lot harder to come up with that answer than it used to be. It's like, well, one in three of us watch the Super Bowl. We like Taylor Swift. Like, it's hard to say. You know, you could be, you could sound like you were running for Congress and be like, well, it's our values and it's our. But whoever's listening to you would be like, "Mm -hmm, really? (laughs) And uh, they'd be unsure that that's true. And so my point is like, I am not somebody who in any way is like we should squash multiculturalism or anything like that. Like I, I'm the opposite of that. I think that it's important that. All the different types of Americans have an opportunity to be very proud of their origin and where they came from and what they've experienced, and at the same time have a sense of national identity with other Americans. And I think that the only way to do that, that I can see right now in the short term, is for everybody to have some shared experience. And right now we don't have that. We have a choose your own adventure Society and if we just had just a year that all of us did something similar and every conversation could start with What'd you do during your service? I can just tell it's the first thing he and I said to each other when we met in the green room There's something to that Mm -hmm. and we don't have the same views on everything But that's the first conversation we had
1: In a nation of 330 million people. You're always gonna have conspiracy theorists You're gonna always have wannabe demagogues. The question is why are so many people vulnerable to that right now? And I'm really impressed by some of the work that's been done to track the collapse of a sense of belonging in the United States. And people who lack a sense of belonging are often drawn to authoritarianism as a source of cause and purpose. And so one of the very concrete things that we can do, at the risk of sounding really sappy, is love our neighbor, build our own civic institutions, be inclusive of people as people and provide for them meaning and purpose in their local lives. A majority of Americans right now signal a higher or lesser degrees of lack of belonging. They feel alone. Loneliness is an epidemic. And so when you scratch the surface of a lot of my friends have gone in on the MAGA conspiracies, what they actually are longing for is companionship. One of my colleagues... Purpose. I, yes, purpose. When I was at the dispatch, one of my colleagues did this phenomenal story on what were called the Front Row Joes. These are the people who go to every Trump rally. And like they follow the Trump, like they follow the grateful... People would follow Grateful Dead. And what he found was they went for Trump and they stayed for each other. They had friendships, they had a bond. But what's really sad is if any one of them broke with Trump, they would lose all of that. And so... This is one thing that I think is really important. Just what we as individuals can do is contribute to that sense of belonging and place and purpose.
3: Well, I, I of course, agree with this. And I do think the, the focus on social sphere and civic society is awfully important. And we've learned that over, many people have written eloquently about this and thought a lot about this and studies confirm how important it is. I would also emphasize the flip side of it, though, is, you know what, if you don't love your neighbor, just respect his rights to be to live his own life as he chooses. And don't Don't think it's appropriate to bully him or bully his kids because they aren't what you think they should be or because their religion isn't what you think it should be or because they come from abroad or because their ethnic group is associated with things you don't like. So I think a revival of a kind of old-fashioned, I say this as a conservative or maybe a little ex-conservative, really old-fashioned liberalism. You know, you don't have to love all, you're not gonna love all 330 million of them, maybe David would because he's an admirable person, but I <laughs> I'm not, I'm not gonna love all of them, you know what? But you know what, just don't bully them and don't, and, and respect their rights. So in a, a kind of old fashioned liberal respect for Everything others, I need mean to know I learned in kindergarten. Tolerance right? of others yeah. or at least, whether yeah. you even respect them, Just, just it's a free country and we should defend that structure of freedom which David was alluding to earlier, is also very important. And that's eroded a lot. You know, people just don't understand the most basic things that you really have to, to keep this society functioning. But, you know, just for the sake of having a decent society, it needs to be a tolerant society.
4: I mean, I think, you know, it's like what, what used to bind people, people together? Military service. I grew up in a military family. That was like yeah. a you know, big three generation Navy family, really big sense of purpose, belonging, religion, schools, all of that does seem to be breaking down. Because I grew up in a military family, I have you know friends from Pascagoula, Mississippi who are very big Trump supporters and we find a way to connect. I spend a lot of time at Trump rallies. They are, it's not about him. As a matter of fact, when he starts speaking, sometimes people start to leave because they're like, okay, I saw all my friends and I'm gonna go now. It's like a football uh, tailgate. Yeah, it's wild. When I go to these Trump rallies, I'm very upfront. I say my name, I tell them I work for Hillary Clinton. You know, I sometimes get bad reactions, but almost not sometimes better reactions than I would get if I went to a Bernie Sanders rally and Mm -hmm. said I worked for Hillary Clinton. (laughs) To your point, I mean, seriously, to your point, you know, I interviewed Marjorie Taylor Greene. I spent a week in her district. I learned so much. And my sister, like, gave me a hard time for an entire weekend about how could you give her a platform. I'm like, oh, my God, Lisa, like, Marjorie Taylor Greene does not need showtime. (laughs) (laughs) Like, hundreds of thousands of people watching the circus to give her a platform. But, like, I wanted to understand where she was coming from. And... I learned a lot, I learned a lot from her constituents who all of them would say to me, it's too much, She's too much, it's too much. We get it, it's too much. But you all, the way you go after her, the way you don't respect her, it's like you don't respect me. And the only place I have found, the only two places where I find that you can mirror, cause that's a very artificial thing going into a Trump rally as a, someone who doesn't participate. But I found I would come out with a bond because like these people, because I trusted them to say I worked for Hillary Clinton And I trusted that they weren't going to, that wasn't going to be a problem. They were very uh, respectful of that. But the only place where I could sort of mirror this is at the local level. Like my husband, Jim, is here, and he works a lot in um, very local politics, you know, like on the ground, community development. And there you find a mix of political views, and it's like, you're kind of able to keep that out of it and like build trust up that way. Revitalizing from the ground up seems to be a way without the magic wand of like national service where people can of different minds can get together on something.
3: You know, I think that was really eloquent and powerful, but I've got to say part of me is with Jed's sister. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> really? Do I really have to understand so, better where Marjorie Taylor yeah. Greene is coming from?
4: No, like, I think I a understand. moderate I in understand the House where she's
3: coming from, you know? I,
4: and
0: I want to add a, just a quick law enforcement point, my sort of home base to exactly what David said, because every time there's a mass shooting and we're at, you know, two a day in this country, I just wait. First you're going to hear the reports from the neighbors of the, uh, his loneliness, isolation, and then the social media will come in, and that will be the substitute for community. And if it happened to be about like baseball or French history there, you know, might've gone another direction, but that's the, the country we live in. A big thank you to our guests and to our very gracious hosts here at the Texas Tribune Festival, Evan Smith and his Cracker Jack staff who outfitted us with a terrific podcast studio for the day. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we're posting full episodes, talking books and other bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for our supporters. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Melies, associate produced by Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McArdle, our research producer is Zeke Reed, Rosie Don Griffin, and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, production assistants by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Terbaillu, and Emma Maynard. A special thanks for his help in all of these productions to Akshaj Terbaillu, and our gratitude as always to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman, talk to you later.